0: Oma gyanati mirandas yang gyanan jana shalakaya chakshurun miletam jena tasmai sri Sidantot palasara rasikam Ham samvila satmakam audariak sudama Seva kadadam babakti pradam yachna yukti vichak sanant vagabido Vande ham tripurari renomakayatim stri bakti verantinam. Vanchakal patarubyas cha, kripa sindubya evacha. Patitanam pavanebia, vaisna namonamaha. Namo maha namo Krishna prema pradayate. Krishnaya, Krishna chaitanya nam negora, se namaha. He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bandu Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kantaradhakantana Moshtute Tapta Kanchan Nagorangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Brissabano Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Jai Sri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Advaita Garadhara Shiva Gaura Bhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna, Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama Rama Rama, Rama, Rama Hare 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 Nama Hare Nama Hare Nama Iba Kebalan Kala Nastieva nastyevanaster, Nastieva Nastieva Gatiranyata When in doubt, read chapter two, part four. So we've come to the fourth and final part of this series on the second chapter of the Gita. And uh, last week, just to do a really quick recap, we talked about the three gunas or modes of nature, sattva, rajas, and tamas, and how sattva, which means goodness or clarity, is the best platform for spiritual practice but we'll also need to be transcended when we reach pure bhakti. In his commentary to verse 245, Vishwana Chakravati Thakur had a lot of really nice quotes about the three gunas, which were taken from the Uddhava Gita in the 11th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, like this one, which uh, is verse 11, 25, 25. Residence in the forest is in the mode of goodness, Residence in a town is in the mode of fashion. Residence in a gambling house displays the quality of ignorance and residence in a place where I reside is transcendental. This of course being Krishna speaking. He is the I whose residence is transcendental. I personally live in a medium-sized town and I've, I've really experienced this uh, shifting of the gunas of the mood when visiting my Guru Maharaj, Tripura Iswami's ashrams in Northern California and Costa Rica. Both ashrams are located in beautiful forests and I immediately feel more peaceful when I arrive there. Of course, living outside the city does often present its own challenges. I've been quoting from Visaka Prabhu's book, Harmony and the Bhagavad. Gira, where she describes her experiences with moving out to the countryside and working in her garden without attachment to the results, which have been very varied over the years. And uh, so this working without attachment to the results was also a major theme in the section of the Gira that we read last week. In the words that I just quoted from the Udava. Gita Krishna mentioned that residence in his abode is transcendental. And in the second chapter of the Gita, he calls this place the abode that is without anxiety. The joyful realm where his dear devotees can participate in his eternal Lila. Later in chapter 15 of the Gita, Krishna will reveal something very important about that same abode in verse four. Uh, Srila Prabhupada says in his translation, one must seek that place from which having gone, one never returns. Or in our translation, pursue that place which having attained, one never returns. So to me, this has always been the answer to the debate on whether the jivas can fall back down to this world from Vaikuntha, one never returns, one never returns. Sometimes Nityas, who are eternally liberated, pure devotees, may come down to this material world for the purpose of Lila, to teach us something. But we who are ordinary Shakti Jivas, we don't need to be worried about having to return here. Krishna won't let us fall down because from his abode, because he's our protector. And one never returns. And how do we reach this abode? Uh, in the second chapter of the Gita, Krishna says that it's by yogic wisdom which will come to us through spiritual practice. So these things will gradually be revealed to us along the path. I've been reading a really sweet, small book uh, uh, or more like booklet uh, by Srila Narayan Maharaj. I have it in Finnish, but it's available online in English as a PDF called The Essence of Bhagavad Gita. Interestingly, the book is centered about a, around a famous verse of the Gita that Narayana Maharaj considered to be the most important one of them all. But it's not the one you might be thinking about, uh, 1866, Sarvadharman, so, Parekhya, Saranam Saranambraja, Forgoing all religious injunctions, take exclusive refuge in me. But instead of uh, this really beloved verse, uh, Maharaj has chosen to write about another one that's almost also very famous 1865. Manmana bhava mam mame satyam te pratijane priyosime. Fix your mind on me. Be my devotee, sacrifice for me, offer obeisance unto me. In this way, you'll surely come to me. I promise you this because you are my very dear friend. And in his book, Naryamaraj makes the point that in a Sarva Dharma verse that I mentioned earlier, Krishna tells us to devote ourselves to him. But in this Manmana verse, he also describes the fruits of this devotion. So in that sense, this verse really contains everything we need to know. And I thought this was a really interesting, a little bit unexpected uh, point of view. So I would recommend uh, this small book to everyone who is studying the Gita. It also contains a few really sweet stories about devotees. I think that one thing that's crucial to understand about the Gita is that Krishna always takes into consideration that different people are in different places on their spiritual path. And will need different advice and some readers might feel confused because Krishna seems to be giving conflicting instructions in different places in the Gita. But what's really going on here is that Krishna speaks to us according to our current situation, showing us that we're all welcome to approach him and take up spiritual practice, regardless of where we are now. And later on in the Gira, in the fourth chapter, verse 11, he confirms this himself. In whatever way people take refuge in me, I reciprocate with them accordingly. Everyone in all circumstances, O son of Prita, follows my path. This is a really fascinating thought, you know, everyone in all circumstances. Uh, it kind of, I feel that it in a really nice way, it shows how, how there's room for all kinds of uh, beliefs and practices and approaches to God in, uh, in the Hindu worldview. Uh, Krishna doesn't condemn anyone of of worshiping of idolatry or uh, worshiping in the wrong way approaching God in the wrong mood he in whatever way people take refuge in him he finds a way to reciprocate so Narayan further writes that the manmana verse describes four activities we can engage in according to our eligibility manmana bhava always think about me Marpakto, devote yourself to me. Madhyaji, worship me. Mamnamaskaru, offer obeisances to me. So if you can't do the first, if you can't always think of Krishna, do the second, devote yourself to Krishna. If you can't do that, you worship Krishna. And if you can't do that either, then you just offer obeisances to Krishna. Even just a simple thing like that, everything will follow from that. It's also interesting to uh, note, as I'm sure many of you know, that there's an almost identical verse in chapter 9, namely verse 934. Fix your mind on me. Be my devotee. Sacrifice for me. Offer obeisance unto me. Absorb dust in me alone you shall come to me. So these really, reading that small book by Naraya Maharaj and uh, thinking of what we talked about last week, uh, I, uh, I wanted to point out how Krishna often makes this same important point several times in different chapters of the Gita, But these two verses, of course, are special because they're uh, almost identical. So we can see that it must be a very important message that Krishna wants to uh, convey to us here. And he wants to be to make absolutely sure that we get it. So now moving on to uh, another really interesting and insightful section of the Gita is where uh, Krishna is going to be talking among other things about the mind. Uh, Guru Maharaj says in his commentary that the last part of the second chapter is where Krishna describes how the enlightened uh, move in this world. And it all begins with Arjuna's question here in verse 254. What, O Keshava, are the characteristics of one who is accomplished in meditation and steady in intelligence? How does such a steady person speak? How does she sit? How does she move? In his commentary, our Guru Maharaj explains this, uh, these questions or puts them in, in language that's perhaps easier for us to understand. How does such a steady person speak? Meaning, how do they reach uh, uh, react to others? How does she sit? Uh, how does she withdraw from worldliness? How does she move? How does she interact with the world? So the rest of the chapter will include Krishna's answers to these questions. In verse 256, Krishna says, amid suffering and happiness, uh, her mind is neither deluded nor delighted, speaking of the pure devotee. She who is free from desire and whose passion, fear and anger have subsided is said to be a sage of a steady mind. And in, in his commentary, Agumaraj says that uh, the suffering mentioned here refers to the three miseries in this world. adi Atmika, miseries arising from one's own body and mind. adi Bautika, miseries arising from other living beings. And Adi-daivika, miseries arising from natural disturbances uh, caused by the demigods. So, suffering, obviously, uh, according to our philosophy, is caused by karma, which can either be prarabda or aprarabda karma, meaning, meaning manifest and unmanifest karma. Karma that's already uh, presented itself, manifested itself in our lives, and karma that's sort of a potential uh, coming up in our future. And it said that bhakti is the only spiritual practice or yogic path has the power to even change the manifest karma. And and this might uh, uh, be a little bit challenging to grasp in practical terms, because we're talking about things that are are already here. So we're entering kind of a mystical realm here perhaps. And uh, in my case, for instance, I still have prosthetics. Uh, new feet won't mystically appear overnight. So the manifest karma that I have of being disabled is still here on the physical, in the physical realm. But in the realm of my subtle body, uh, I feel like like I've overcome that. That that karma has in fact been eradicated. Uh, because I no longer suffer mentally of my disability. So many years ago, uh, I was selling comic books at, at a big comics festival here in Finland. And, and the book that I was selling that was new that year was a hospital diary that I did about getting amputated, one of my first, uh, first comic books. and. I was really happy about finally being able to talk about my disability openly and having let go of the shame of being different um, as learning about karma and studying the Gaudiya Vaishnava philosophy had, had really helped me put things in perspective and, and seeing these struggles that I had with my feet as a learning experience. And I had had a little bit of publicity with the book. Uh, it kind of snowballed from a couple of uh, magazine interviews. And and I was on TV and and had, so a lot of people had at that point sort of heard my story and uh, heard that I had done a book about, uh, about the amputation and learning to walk again. And this woman came to my table at the festival and looked at me and the photo of me on the cover of the book and my prosthetics and maybe she had read about me previously and came to seek me out or maybe she was just inspired in that moment in a really unfinished way to start preaching to me. Now usually Finns are Lutherans and and don't really talk about religion in public and certainly don't start talking about it to strangers in a situation like that so maybe this woman was a member of, a, of some smaller Christian group that had a, like a more active outreach program. Anyhow, she, she said to me that I should come to their prayer meeting. And I was like, um, thanks, but mm, didn't want to offend her. But you know, like I already have a religion. Uh, yeah, you really should. you really should come. Maybe God would liberate you from your disability, and you know miracles happen all the time. And I was just so baffled because this isn't something that you usually get in Finland. And uh, and her assuming obviously that I was suffering is something that that in these days we would consider quite rude. But uh, so she moved on maybe looking for someone else to preach to. And and afterwards I laughed and I I imagined going to the prayer meeting and meeting their prayer club and having new feet just appear out of nowhere. I even drew a comic about it, kind of making fun of the whole thing. And in the last panel of the comic, new feet just like pop out of my stumps, like plop, plop. And, uh, but thinking about it today, I realized that actually the pussy Christian lady was right because internally for me, that manifest karma has, has disappeared, even though the external signs of it still linger in the form of the prosthetics. So you probably all heard the metaphor of the fan being switched off but the blade is still turning so the devotee's karma has already sort of been extinguished but But some remains are still there, turning and turning until they slow down and finally stop. So I see my physical feet kind of as the turning blades. But in the subtle body, which would, I guess, be the electricity in this metaphor I'm working on here, uh, the karma has already been switched off. So, yeah, after all these years, sorry that I laughed at you, Christian lady, if somehow you will one day listen to this. And um, yeah, a huge problem, really, the biggest problem of my life has in this way been solved. Like I've been telling throughout these talks that that the second chapter of the Gita has all the solutions to all the problems in in life and this has genuinely been my experience and based on that i'm confident to uh, to promise to you to today that that all the answers are in there so moving on to verse 257 krishna will continue describing the sage of steady mind One who is free from all material affection, who upon attaining that which is pleasant or unpleasant, neither praises nor disapproves, stands firm in wisdom. So in the previous verse, Krishna used this term, sage of a steady mind, and here he says that such a person is free of material affection. And when I first read the Gita as a very new devotee in the late 90s, I had just discovered Bhakti Yoga and I, figure that this is the best thing there is and and I kind of sped through these sections of the Gita later on as well when Krishna talks more about the different paths and I was thinking that they didn't really apply to me Uh, all that like sitting still in meditation and turning inwards and controlling the breath and and all that I didn't think it had anything to do with bhakti because my idea of spiritual practice was really hands-on, really practical, like cooking and washing and cleaning, doing service like that and having wild kirtans and huge feasts. And there was very little place in my idea of of the path of bhakti for sitting still in meditation. And and obviously being very young and arrogant, just having discovered this amazing thing, The way I had understood it was that bhakti is superior to all the other paths, and so we have nothing to learn from them. But over the years, as I have struggled with my chanting, having such a hard time to sit still, I've come to realize that there's a lot of wisdom also in in these instructions. A rajasic mind like mine will always think of excuses to avoid calming down, always come up with a new project that and maybe it's disguised as a preaching project, but, but it's really, if, we, uh, if we're being honest with ourselves, there's really that factor of, of always pushing forward and never really slowing down to actually sit down and chant, and uh, our taste for the holy name, of course, through the practice should gradually increase. And if it doesn't, it can be really useful to study these methods that the yogis have used to quiet the mind. And for me, pranayama, for instance, has been really helpful in this. But I can feel, you know, at least that there's been some progress that at least today i don't skip over these sections and and think that you know have that like arrogant attitude which looking back at it is is you know quite arrogant after all it's still krishna speaking and i thought that, it, that i don't need to listen so verse 255 58 sorry continuing on, on the same theme hmm is one of my favorite ones here. And when she completely withdraws her senses from their objects, like a tortoise draws its limbs within its shell, her wisdom stands firm. I've always thought of this as such a fun verse and it's so visual Uh, for someone like me who makes a living out of drawing. uh, I always picture myself as the uh, tortoise, uh, sitting next to a big tray of cupcakes and reaching for the fourth or the fifth one and and then pulling my hand back at the last moment like nope four is enough and uh, you know like the tortoise drawing its limbs inside the shell but of course I would still be thinking about the cupcake If this was as a party on the way home, I'd totally regret not having that one extra one. And the next worst uh, address is exactly this type of uh, external renunciation, 259. One embodied may fast from feeding the senses, turning away from their objects, but the taste for those objects remains. However, one who does the same in the course of experiencing a higher taste derived from seeing God loses the very taste for sense objects as well. Thus, she remains fixed. So in the first class of this series, I talked about false renunciation and how Arjuna makes all these points that sound so deep and spiritual to avoid doing his job as a warrior. But Krishna totally sees through him and tells him to, to fight, that he needs to fight. So that's exactly what Krishna's talking about here as well: turning away from things externally while still meditating on them internally. Of course, Arjun really is the perfect, is a perfect devotee. It's good to remember that for the purpose of the Leela, he's overtaken by Maya, he's put on her illusion. Uh, and so in that state, um, he appears to us sort of as as a cheater, as a person who even if he did leave everything behind and go meditate in the forest, his mind would still be on the battlefield. So the teaching here, obviously, is that it's better to just be honest about your material and in this case to, to fight. Oops, someone seems to be... There we go. So the concept of higher taste that's mentioned in the second part of this verse is really important thing. Gloria, this isn't the path of attachment. This isn't the path of detachment, but a path of attachment to Krishna. And this can be hard for others to understand, Uh, seeing the devotees living in nice houses with nice things and eating nice food and having overall a nice time. Uh, I mean, I've certainly experienced people questioning my my spirituality because I don't have the austere lifestyle that people associate with uh, Eastern spirituality. And sometimes even devotees themselves will get confused and. Uh, sort of mix up thing, ideas from other paths with bhakti and think that they'll get closer to Krishna by neglecting their bodily and psychological needs. For anyone who feels bad about liking nice things, I would warmly recommend that you familiarize yourself with the story of Pundarek Vidyanidhi. He was a great devotee of Krishna who and a contemporary of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who were extremely nice things, but was also, also had an extremely high degree of devotion to Krishna and Mahaprabhu. There's a famous story about Mukunda Datta and Garadhar Pandit, who were both also associates of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, uh, going to visit Pundarek Vidyanidi, and they found him lying on a soft bed with fancy satin sheets and silk pillows, and servants were cooling him with peacock fans, and Garadar Pandit was a little bit shocked, and, and he started wondering if uh, Pundarik even was a devotee at all, since he was looking so much like a complete hedonist just lying there snacking on barrel nuts that were served from a box decorated with gems. So like I said, very nice things. And, but Mukunda Datta, who knew Pundarik reik very well, wanted to demonstrate to Gadadhar Pandit that this really was a great devotee. So Mukunda recited a passage from Srimad Bhagavatam, talking about the witch Putana, who tried to kill baby Krishna, but got Krishna's mercy anyway, just because she was dressed as a devotee. And this is used as an extreme example of Krishna's mercy to his devotees that even someone who is only dressed as a devotee and not even just dressed, but who is actively trying to harm Krishna uh, will win over his heart because his devotees are so dear to him. So, you know, the bar is, that's like setting the bar pretty low for us. You know, dress as a devotee, don't try to kill Krishna. Not too hard to, uh, to accomplish. Anywho, uh, so Mukunda Mukundadatta uh, reads this passage from the Bhagavatam about Putana, and hearing this Pundarik Vidyanidi threw himself on the ground and tore off his silk shirt and, and with tears flooding from his eyes, he cried out, The Lord is infinitely merciful, yet he deprives me of his mercy. And seeing him rolling on the ground in misery, his fancy clothing in shreds, uh, Gadadhar Pandit also realized that all the nice things were just externals. So the point here, my point here is that looks can deceive, and this verse like warns us of people posing as advanced yogis, perhaps even gurus, while still having thirst for material enjoyment. But we should be equally careful of uh, not to judge someone even though they don't look spiritual the way spiritual is often pictured in in the media. Guru Marj also makes a nice Comment, point in his commentary saying that here Krishna advocates that pramana or valid evidence of experience, uh, uh, rules above all other forms of evidence. Feeling rules our life. This is both our misfortune and good fortune. And uh, this point really reminded me of a book of speculative fiction that I read quite recently called Machines Like Me by Ian McEvan. Spoiler alert, if someone hasn't read it yet and wants to, uh, you will want to mute me for a couple of minutes now, because I'm totally gonna reveal the ending. Uh, So the book takes place in uh, an alternative history of the UK in the 80s where the mathematician Alan Turing is a national hero and He's developed these robots or cyborgs really that are very human-like. And the protagonist of the book has bought one of the very first robots that are available to the public, uh, mainly out of curiosity uh, for this new technology, but maybe he's also kind of lonely uh, because he's secretly in love with his neighbor but unable to tell her how he feels. So the book basically deals with the question of artificial intelligence and the nature of consciousness. Asking whether a machine can achieve consciousness and are we then just very complicated computers that have created religion and mystical experiences to fulfill some kind of psychological needs that we have. further on, can our consciousness then be uploaded into a cloud where we would live forever as some kind of code. And while the book doesn't deal directly with the question of spirituality, I felt that there was a strong message of uh, humanity being something so much more than a computer could ever be. Because what happens at the end of the book, and here comes the spoiler, is that we find out that the neighbor, the uh, beloved of the protagonist, has committed a crime uh, in order to get justice for a friend who was a victim of another crime. So in the eyes of the protagonist, and at least in my case, the reader as well, the crime committed by the neighbor was completely justified because someone had hurt her friend and gotten away with it. So the protagonist doesn't really see it as a problem at all that his beloved has broken the law since she did it out of love for her friend. But the robot uh, who's at that point become very close to them uh, being a machine ultimately and ruled by intelligence even though he has some kind of artificial emotions built into him, he turns the neighbor into the police because he do- just doesn't understand the complicated emotional nature of the situation. The robot has all the knowledge in the world and superhuman ability to learn more and more uh, and to try to understand human behavior to almost become human, but it's always almost. It still doesn't make him human. And like Guru said here, we're ruled by feeling and a machine can never understand the complexity of our internal life, that ability that we have to bend the rules because of love. It's ultimately just a question then of where to direct that love, to find the object of love that, who can fully reciprocate, who can give back and won't let us down. And it's it's said that when we take one step towards Krishna, he takes 10 steps towards us. With the gopis, it should be added. It's a different story. Their love is so strong that it overwhelms even Krishna. But to us, he has promised that he'll always reciprocate accordingly. In verse uh, 260, Uh, Krishna talks about the senses and the mind. Indeed, O son of Kunti, the senses are so strong that they can forcibly carry away the mind of even a discriminating person. I'm sure this is something we all have experienced, uh, thinking that we're resolute in our attempts to you know, overcome the silliness that the mind throws it, but yeah, ending up being forcibly carried away by the senses. And there are two ways of uh, looking at this that that many of us may have heard uh, quoted in our tradition. Bhakti Thakur famously said that we should beat our mind a hundred times with a broom. And Prabhupada would kind of say the same thing that in the morning we should beat our mind with a broom and in the evening with shoes. I kind of like this uh, being a kind of a straight forward person but you know I like the idea of just banging the mind with a broomstick. And, but I could see how other more sensitive people might feel intimidated. And uh, another way of looking at, at this dilemma uh, would be what our said a week and a half ago on his weekly Q&A that we call the Swami Cult. And he, he was talking about working with the mind and not against the mind. As the mind is so strong that if we just push against it, we won't be successful. Uh, So we need to create a favorable environment for bhakti. And and if we feel bad about ourselves, if we feel guilty about not being the perfect devotees right away, isn't going to help with creating that, that favorable environment. Further on in, in the Gita, in chapter 6, Krishna and Arjuna will also discuss the mind in more detail. And Arjuna will lament that the mind really is impossible to control. And, and Krishna will assure him once again that through devotion to him, even the impossible becomes possible. In the following verse, Krishna goes on to, uh, to talk about the senses restraining the senses and disciplining oneself, one should sit fixing one's consciousness on me. Such a person is known to be steady in consciousness. Reading this made me think of a yogi steadily situated in the mode of sattva, goodness, clarity. But uh, it's good to remember that even the discipline mentioned here must be moderation. As we learn in, in chapter 6 verse 16, yoga is not attained by eating too much or eating too little, sleeping too much or sleeping too little. So it's all about balance. Krishna will also talk about the seed of the yogi being not too high and not too low. So there's always that balance and sometimes our Guru Maharaj also says that we need to give the mind a bit of leash and then we pull it back and this way we continue a little bit of leash again and then we pull it back in instead of trying to, you know, constantly push on uh, in a way that's uh, harmful for psychological well-being in the long run. In verses uh, 62 and 63, Krishna goes on to talk about the sense objects. When one contemplates sense objects, attachment for them is born. From attachment, desire is born. From desire, frustration. And from frustration, delusion. When one is deluded, memory is lost. With the loss of memory, the power of discrimination is destroyed. With the destruction of discrimination, one's own self is lost. So, reading this has always felt to me like my life story attachment, desire, frustration, delusion. Uh, I feel that we can see here Rajas deteriorating into Thomas. In Rajas, we yearn for things, in Thomas, we're just too deep in delusion even to strive further in life. But we should remember that bhakti is above all the three gunas. So even though tamas isn't ideal at all for spiritual practice, it doesn't mean that those who are currently in a tamasic situation wouldn't be able to somehow participate. In, let's say, kirtan or eating prasaram, there's something in bhakti genuinely for everyone. In verse 260. 267 Krishna says whichever one of the rowing senses the mind runs after that sense carries away one's intelligence just as the wind carries away a ship on water i really love all these nature metaphors in the gira the mind is like the wind the yogi who's lost their way is a riven cloud and maya illusion is an ocean and then elsewhere of course we have the more positive examples of the sacred rivers and and holy mountains where the sages live. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, in his maybe most famous verse talks about the humble blade of grass and the tolerant tree. And like we've learned the uh, nature is a more sattvic environment than the city. And therefore more conducive for spiritual practice And I've even heard devotees say that it's suspicious to chant by large bodies of water. Uh, If someone has a scriptural reference to confirm that statement, I'd love to hear it since I find the waves of the sea very soothing for my mind, and it would be nice to be able to back it up with scripture. So the mind is a powerful entity, but we don't need to feel powerless facing it. We tend to have this resistance to someone telling us how to live our lives, especially if it's an old book, like, why should I listen to something that someone just wrote in a book? And, but over the years, I've experimented with different things, and I've come to realize that the scripture gives us, actually gives us great advice on how to practice and this maybe shouldn't come as a surprise as the scripture has been written down by, by experts on spirituality. And, and a lot of it, obviously, is revealed knowledge spoken by Krishna himself or his rep- representatives, but somehow it's difficult often for a mind to accept these beneficial things without first trying, trying doing things the opposite way so there's yeah there's a lot of good advice on how to tackle the mind if we just if we're just willing to listen another verse that i've always really liked is um verse 69 of the second chapter that which is night for all sentient beings is like day for one whose senses are controlled that which is the time of awakening for a sentient being is like the night for the introspective sage who sees. So as a young devotee, Kamalaksha, my husband used to live near the Helsinki temple here in Finland, and often he would ride his skateboard to the Mangalarte, to the early morning program at around 4.30 AM, just as the sun was rising and the bars were closing. So Kamalaksa had just gotten up. It was a morning for him, a new day. Uh, But the people going home from the bars uh, were still like kind of living in the day before. It was still evening for, for them. So morning and evening at the same time. And that's what I always think about when I read this verse. Of course, if we could also look at this verse maybe a little bit more seriously and uh, understand that, that the devotee who sees God everywhere and in everything in that way also sees endless service opportunities. But if we choose to serve our own ego, if we're just serving ourselves, uh, we will see others as instruments of sense enjoyment. We'll really see others as uh, expect others to serve us, as opposed to having that serving, that service mentality towards them. So these two wor- ways of looking at the world really are so different from each other that that it is like night becomes day and day becomes night. And now we've come to the last verse of the second chapter of the Gita. O Pārtam, having attained this divine state, one is not deluded. If one is fixed in this consciousness, even at the moment of death, one attains Brahman and the cessation of all suffering. So Brahman, of course, is an aspect of Krishna, and this part of the Gita, Krishna isn't speaking completely openly about himself, yet as the supreme personality of Godhead. Uh, But thinking of this verse in the context of the entire text of the Gita, we can see that the enlightened person that Krishna talks about here is his dear devotee, the person always thinking about Krishna and never, never, never forgets him. And I wanted to end with a small story that many of you have probably heard before, but I just read in Vishwana Chakravarti Thakur's Gira commentary. Actually, not in the second chapter, but a little bit later on, but everything's connected and all the other chapters are contained in the second chapter. So I felt it would be be a nice ending for this series of talks. So once upon a time, a bird had its nest on the shore of the ocean but the ocean stole the bird's eggs with its waves. And seeing this, the bird was so determined to get her eggs back that she vowed to empty the ocean, taking out one drop of water at a time with her beak. And of course the ocean wasn't too affected by this at all, no matter how many drops the bird took out in her beak. But the sage Narada Muni happened to come by and the bird repeated her vow in front of him. In this life or the next I will dry up the ocean. And in his verse, inarada sent the great eagle Garuda to help out the bird, saying that the ocean had disrespected the little bird who was Garuda's relative, as all birds are. And Garuda comes over flapping his enormous wings and pushing aside the waters And the ocean got so terrified that it immediately returned the eggs. And I feel like this story is so sweet because it shows that with the help of great devotees, even an impossible task becomes manageable as long as we continue our practice with determination. In this life or the next, I will dry up the ocean. You know, I will conquer the mind, I will develop attachment to Krishna. And so, dear friends, my series of talks has come to an end, having solved all of life's problems, as I promised in the beginning. And if any new problems should appear in the future, just remember that chapter 2 has all the answers. And I'd like to um, thank you all who, has been, who have been listening. Uh, And especially my interpreter, Bhakta Premadas, who has had to tolerate me getting excited and talking way too fast in my weird Finnish accent. Thank you all. And and, uh, I'd love to hear if you have any questions or comments. So please go ahead and unmute and share your thoughts on, on the Gita or... Anything related
1: to it? Haribol Krishangi. Oh wait,
0: Haribol. Oh yeah, you can hear us.
1: Dandavat, okay. thank you very much for this class and the other classes as well. This was a super fun and 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 very helpful series, thank I think. You. But even though you solved all of our problems, <laughs> I still have one problem left that is you not completely it. solved. Mm-hmm. And that is. You spoke about the need of balance, and uh, it's not always so easy for me to find the balance. So, could you say something about this? For real, I think this is an important question: uh, how to be able to to judge what is actually balanced and what is not.
0: Thank you. That that is a great question. It's actually something that I had at some point thought about uh, covering in my class, but then it slipped my mind. But, uh, you know, I was talking about how we can really, how we need the help of great devotees. Like the bird never would have gotten that ocean emptied if Narada and Garuda wouldn't have come along. And, and I, I feel like I've asked this question from Guru Maharaj in the past of how to um, how to be able to be objective because I think that's really what finding balance is all about, sort of uh, making sure that we're not cheating ourselves in the name of finding balance. But uh, and he, um, if I remember correctly. Uh, said that that's really what the teacher is for the guru. The teacher is the person who will look at us and see where we are, and see whether we need to kind of uh, slow down a little bit or, or step on the gas. Maybe in some cases, a guru would have so many students that they won't be able to deal personally with everyone's situation. We've obviously been extremely um, privileged to have a guru uh, who's so easy for us to contact them. And, and we've been able to actually get personal advice, but Uh, I think we can see the guru more broadly here in the sense that that it could also be a senior devotee who knows as well uh, knows as well and is able to tell us if I mean obviously there has to be an environment of trust and mutual respect so yeah I would say that first and foremost the guru or or then a senior devotee for whom we have so much respect that we'll be able to take their advice or even criticism.
1: Thank you. Can I ask one quick second question? Sure. What's Kamalaksha cooking?
0: (laughs) Uh, I believe it's a deep fried eggplant and chickpeas in tomato sauce. Uh,
1: <laughs> and rice and
0: coconut. And dal and rice and coconut in case you didn't hear. So yes, I am transmitting from our kitchen and I apologize for any noises, but you know, speaking makes me hungry. So a husband's got to do what a husband's got to do. Any other questions? thoughts, I see there's a yeah, there's a direct message, but I'll reply to that later. Anyone else who would like to unmute and say something? If that's it for tonight, then I want to uh, thank you once more. If you feel like continuing the discussion, uh, you can always uh, message me, reach out to me, and, and I'm hoping that we'll all also be together in the same room one day reading the Gira and, and cherishing these, these verses. So thank you so much, and uh, and see you on the other classes in this same series. Hari Hari. Shri Guru Gauranga Ki Jai. Shri Krishangi Devi Ki Jai.
1: Jai.